Do you know what makes Father Harrison cry? Well, I, producer Nick, know exactly what makes Father Harrison cry. What makes him cry is when he's in line at a fast food place, in a moment of desperation where he is just so hungry, on the road, on the move, doing priest things. What makes Father Harrison cry is when he's in line at fast food and he pulls up to the last window and they say, Father, would you mind waiting a couple of extra minutes? We're making fresh fries for you. There is nothing better than fresh French fries. And Father Anthony totally agrees. This is what you missed out in the first few minutes of banter in this episode of Clerically Speaking because Father Anthony's microphone still wasn't working. What a bummer. We promised here at Clerically Speaking that this kind of thing will never ever happen again. And by never ever, we mean we really, really hope not. That's the only part of the podcast that was all messed up. And now I'd like to return you back to your favorite host, Father Anthony and Father Harrison, for the rest of Clerically Speaking, starting at my personal favorite spot of the podcast, the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. respect and appreciate your commitment to trying to make a good transition i'm gonna try i'll get there and one that day. was that was a great transition depending on the tweets what's the tweet about enjoying the finer things all right uh the tweet comes from incubating egg at efficacy of grace and her tweet is simply this f ah so can i explain and, this and the screenshot and, wait okay well let me in this in this okay. screenshot of uh felix Who's I don't know, no even point to really reading out his Twitter handle anymore. Uh, his tweet, his his profile is gone. Okay, so explanation because this is very yes. important. Now, if you're not familiar with at least Twitter culture, when you hear that someone just tweeted F, you might think it's some kind of expletive, but you are a, an uncultured fool. What F means? It's a reference to a video game where there is an option in this military funeral, it's kind of like a cut scene, but with uh, quick action, um, and you pressed F to pay respects. And the internet finds this very funny because it's trying to be like a kind of like deep emotional storytelling thing in the video game, but you're pressing a button to pay respects. So anyway, when you see F, it usually means you're paying respects. Yes. And what's the deal with this Twitter account that is gone? So from Felix, Felix. Uh, Felix used to be on Twitter, and it was announced about a week before it happened. He was deleting his account because he is joining a monastery in Ireland. Yeah, man, this is which so is good, so awesome. I don't think anyone knew about this. Like, I didn't know about this. Maybe I some people. Maybe, I'm sure some of his friends knew or something like that. And I think he lived in Carolina because I, I saw a picture with the Pauline sisters before he left from Charlotte, Charlotte, uh, Charlotte North Carolina, mm-hmm. and he. Uh, uh, yeah, so he flew off to Ireland to go join a monastery. And what a beautiful thing. Like, what a great witness that uh, this is still happening. People are still discerning this. People are wanting to enter into uh, their vocational state. And he's left the world. He's left everything behind. It's, I got to think, it's got to be weird to be flying to a, another country with pretty much nothing on you. Yeah, right? Because you're you're take, you're taking on... A, I don't know if for novices, if they take on habits or what they take on, but they probably don't have to bring a whole lot. They probably just say, bring a suitcase of clothes and that's it. And that's got to be the weirdest thing. How long are you staying in Ireland? Forever. <laughs> Forever. And I don't even know which community is going to join. But God, you know, first, I just want to say, if you're out there, please say a prayer for Felix as he enters into this vocational journey. Yeah, a few things. One, he, I mean, 
all I knew about this guy was that his Twitter account was very clever, very thoughtful, witty, mm -hmm. but also very deep. You know, you can tell there's a piety there. Mm -hmm. And he's definitely going to be missed in the Twitter community. But it's a beautiful reminder that, like, Twitter is not life. <laughs> Social right. media is not life. Even podcasts. These are good things, but not life. And to have that witness of someone, like, abandoning all these good things for a greater good it was, like, a deep reminder. And like, I think I was just driving. I'm always driving somewhere because I have seven parishes. But I, I just, like, literally got, like, emotional thinking about how good this is. That this, this man is devoting his life in a extreme way yeah. to Jesus Christ. He's going to mm -hmm. be praying for us all. You know, it's it's really these more contemplative orders that keep the God from, I think, smiting the world and blowing it up um, and giving us time to repent. I say that half facetiously, um, but it's how beautiful and good, because really, you know, him leaving Twitter is this wonderful act of love to everyone who is in that community. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. um, and also, just on a note, like, no one knew about his discernment online. He didn't make a big deal out of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very prudent as well. Yeah. Because this thing will happen because, you know, Catholic culture, Catholic youth culture, youth group culture, um, it, there's this thing that happens where people either purposefully or not purposefully enjoy the kind of clout enjoy the kind of praise about talking about how they're discerning right and that's not healthy to discernment it's much better to do it quietly to talk to trusted friends to talk to priests to talk to you know good spiritual friends about this thing because you know this whole thing about putting you know discerning something in your in your bio on social media uh, you're gonna have to get over yourself a little bit you know, because subconsciously, I think a lot of us do that to get like the to get the praise from it. And right. that's not healthy to discernment. Right. So the fact that he did this quietly was a really good example of mm -hmm. discernment done right. Mm -hmm. um, and it came as a shock. because it's, it's a big decision. But I was like, yeah, this guy's good. This guy's going to be OK. Mm -hmm. you know, and who, I mean, who knows where his discernment goes and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, to make this kind of commitment, I think he's you know pretty sure. And um He's come to that place, I assume, because he's you know done his work in quiet, and mm -hmm. I think that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is mildly controversial, but let's do it. This is from Jeremy McClellan, and he <laughs> is quote tweeted something from Donald Trump Jr. So I'm going to do the quote tweet first. Donald Trump Jr. said, "Likelihood of Nancy Pelosi praying for Trump is about the same as the likelihood of Satan running around and quoting scriptures." And Jeremy just says, Satan does do that kind of a lot. <laughs> and so it's just kind of funny because like politics aside, there's a misunderstanding. Like every like Christian knows that, yeah, Satan is like the best theologian. Like the, the, there, no, no demon is an atheist. They know who God is, but they tremble in, 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 in fear before him. Yeah. Like Satan knows the truth better than we do. He's, you know, first of all, he's an angelic intellect, but mm -hmm. also, I mean, a story that almost everyone knows in the gospels is the temptation in the desert where Satan over and over again quotes scripture. So it's kind of, it's just kind of funny, you know, poking fun at this idea like, no, 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 Satan, he actually does know the scripture pretty well. Yeah. And I just found that whole thing just, just I loved his, I loved his following tweet. This is why Catholics aren't allowed to read the Bible, so we never know what Satan is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, this, I, although we could actually twist it to say like maybe maybe he's actually trying to say that there is actually a likelihood that she that she prays for him. But I doubt who knows, this. Who knows? I doubt who knows? this. I doubt this. But uh, yeah. Uh, but yes, if you actually know your scripture, you know uh, the temptations in the desert. Yeah. This is something the devil likes to do kind of a lot. Mm -hmm. And just as yeah. a wreck, there is a little bit of a scuttle on Twitter. But I just want to say, if you don't find Jeremy McClellan funny, you don't have a great sense of humor. He's genuinely a pretty witty guy, yes, even over the Twitter medium. So I thought that yes. was delightful. I enjoyed yes, that a lot. I did too. Uh, so um, next one's from Good Tweetman at Good Tweet underscore Man, and his tweet simply says modernity.txt, and it's a picture from a subway, and it says this: "It's okay to have strong convictions." And abandoned them for the night. 
And he, he, so his his uh, text is meant to kind of summarize that this uh, image sums up modernity perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I think it does sum up modernity quite quite well. I, I well, although actually, I wouldn't even say modernity. I mean, I'd say actually post. That's actually a very postmodern thing to say. You right. can hold generally to some very absolute things, but it's okay to let go of them once in a while for the sake of whatever. Um, like, what does it mean? What do they mean by strong convictions? Right. Also, like, what is this advertising? We have no idea. I'm but sure. it can't be something good. Like, why? <laughs> if if one has strong convictions, it's probably for at least for that person a good reason. And the idea of like dropping your convictions for yeah. a moment, like that's not healthy. Now, some convictions are not good, right? That's the thing that happens. But it it does point to this whole postmodern thing of, you know, there really is no truth. There really is no objectivity. And really, I mean, that kind of sentence, since we were talking about Satan before, that really is a satanic whisper. Like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to drop your convictions for a night. You don't need to do uh, this right now. It's all good. It's okay. You know, you'll come back to your convictions and stuff. And, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> no, sin is bad. Yes, yeah, sin, sin is doesn't bad. stop being bad because no, bad. Stop sinning, everybody. Do it now. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> I I see you. Stop it. No. <sighs> stop it. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. All right. This is from KP at KL underscore Fam P H A M says. That one-year-old whom I semi-frequently tweet, who sits in front of the pew, in the pew in front of me, finally offered me the sign of peace today. I have been snubbed every week since he was nine months old. Praise the Lord for thy blessings are abundant. (laughs) So this is part of like, okay, so we talked last week about how it's important to um, reform the liturgy, to, you know, make it more solemn, to let people know what's going on. I agree with everything I said, obviously, but also liturgy, apart from being divine, is also very human. Yeah. And there's lots of little human moments and God will do this. He'll do little things, either make the priest mess up a little bit or something will happen yeah. you know, in the congregation. I think it's a good reminder that this is God's work and we are imperfect. Yeah. Um, so like little fun things will happen. Like little kids at mass can really change the feeling of the liturgy. And if there's a cute little kid in front of you who has never offered you the sign of peace, and in your heart you're like, man, I really want to you know, offer that kid a sign of peace, and he does, and there's a little bit of joy, stuff like this I think is good and normal yeah. and healthy. Because like we talked about, the parish should be a family. This is like a beautiful little family moment. So, mm-hmm. And this is something a... Uh... This is something uh, a, a one-year-old would totally do. Just, like, continue to withhold the sign of peace. It's too shy, you know? Like, right. like uh, no, no, I want to stay close to mom. You are a strange person who I don't know. My, my comfort is only amongst those of my kin. And <laughs> right, the, <laughs> this is what a nine-month-old does. Yeah. Uh, and so there's always that great joy when they, they, they kind of come out of themselves and see, yes, this person is safe. This person has not uh, caused me harm in the mm-hmm. weeks I've been coming to this strange place where they do where they stand and kneel all the time. Uh, <laughs> the and it's just and what again, like you said, this is what a beautiful example of family, right? This is a growing of communion with a family and that little joy that we have. Like, yes, this person has now reached out to me in the context of the liturgy is a good thing. And I just love that tweet. I just thought, what a what a great encapsulation of stuff that happens at Mass. Yeah, it reminds me of what happened to me the other week at Mass. So I had a morning Mass, and it's not super late. It's 8.45, which is, you know, a reasonable time to be awake, technically. But I'm still a cranky person in the morning. And I was just feeling a little bit cranky. And when I process down the aisle, you know, I've got my hands folded. I've got my holy hands. I'm <clears throat> I'm looking straight ahead. But uh, this little girl was in her mom's arms, and she just like so enthusiastically waved at me, mm-hmm. and I just waved back, mm-hmm. and like all of a sudden, like mass was the whole mass was more joyful for me because mm-hmm. this little girl just like waved, like it was so pure and real, and, like just want to say hi to the priest, and so I waved back <laughs> during the procession, and mm-hmm. it, like stuff like that's good, and we shouldn't yeah. freak out about normal human stuff like that. Exactly. Cool. Well. We're we're gonna bring we're gonna resurrect something. 
This is good. That looking at the old episodes, this is about a year ago. <laughs> oh, is it really? It's oh, really no. a year ago. <laughs> for, for, wow, we're really we're really ahead of ourselves too. Um, those of you know, we 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 made an attempt to start talking about um, John Paul II's theology, body theology, the human person, and um, we're going to resurrect it because here's the thing: Nick even has a bumper for this. Oh, does he? Yeah. Yes. I hope, he, yes. I hope he still has it. I hope so, too. We'll find... Let's be surprised. Ladies and gentlemen, Theology of the Body, Theology of the Human Person. Here we go. And now it's time for Theology of the Human Person. You have human dignity. Guys and girls are different. Full, total, faithful, fruitful. Yeah. So here's the thing, <laughs> to defend myself, like, <laughs> theology of the human person, John Paul II's teachings on what it means to be a human being and the Christian, you know, understanding of that is a great passion of mine. It's something that helped me discern priesthood. And I mm-hmm. had this, like, great idea, like, let's just go through the book. And mm-hmm. every once in a while, I'd go through his writings. And so we did one episode and we did another episode. And after that, I just stopped. But, <laughs> but... You know, we are many parts, one body, and and Harrison, Father Harrison, you are doing some teachings on theology of the body. So yeah. I am very excited and happy that you are taking the lead on this. And uh, yeah, here we go. Well, it worked out really well. Yeah, so uh, I'm helping out a bit at the parish my bishop is looking after right now. Uh, twice a month I say Mass there and I run a young adults group. And so uh, at the end of December, they're like, hey, can we do something that we can help us understand the human person in the context of university life? We're not a big group. We get about 10 people, maybe a little bit more sometimes. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, let's start doing Theology Body, partially because this works right into my doctoral thesis. So it can be ki- like killing two birds with one stone. Um, and now and you're killing three birds with, birds one, with one stone. stone. That's right. That's great That's efficiency right. in bird killing Thank you. terms. And it just so happened that what I talked about last night is we stopped at original solitude. Mm-hmm. And when we when we last did this a year ago, <laughs> so can we give a like, quick update on what we talked about? Is that possible? Yes, 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 yes. So um, let me. All right, children, <laughs> stop. S- settle yourselves, <laughs> and let us get into this. Um, I will. I want to offer personally first a little slight correction. Now I don't want to get into the whole technicalities of it but i've read a very good article in communio a few months ago about john paul ii's theological anthropology theology of the human person and he actually this guy very balanced i think it was dr healy um justifies why it really can be called a theology of the body because that's been our big like uh talking point it's not theology. i mean it is it is it is a more adequate like it is in a larger like it is in a larger sense not just about the body but he's talking about that this phrase can be used to kind of apply to the sense that the human person is always an embodied person, right? So that, and that's the very simple summary of the argument. And I thought that was actually a very adequate answer. So I said, I don't feel so bad about talking about theology. Yeah, I just, I was gonna give I just want to get a hard time. I want to get away from that over-sexualization of this teaching. Right. That happens with this. And when we talk about the body in this context, at least how it's been presented, we tend to think about this in terms of sex. And that, and he, John Paul II does absolutely talk about that, but that's not the only thing he talks about. So, okay. So we've talked, so a little, a little recap. Uh, if you want to go back, it's episodes 27 and 33. See, I did my research this morning. I said, what do we talk you? about so far? What do we talk about so far? So uh, we talk about the beginning right jesus's phrase to the pharisees it was not so from the beginning is his way of implicitly bringing us into conversation with the book of genesis that when a first century jew heard these words they knew exactly what he meant in the beginning is a direct reference to genesis and so jesus brings us into that beginning to talk about the creation of man and how man is created and then in this context he talks about original solitude right so this is where we left off the last episode the two senses of solitude solitude first and the solitude is experienced through the body in man in his original creation solitude is experienced first in the naming of animals he realizes that they don't complete him 
they are not they are not that they are lesser beings than him but that so that there is that solitude in creation and then there's also the solitude in reference to god right. even i'm not god <laughs> i'm like in the suspended middle almost uh and even within humanity itself there's a solitude of this incompletion between man and woman right, right? i think it's also it points to the the primary and primordial relationship that man is in first in a relationship with god right even before anything else yes and then john paul ii says that this solitude is actually has got kind of a logical priority when we're talking about the human condition that is actually a more primordial aspect of us and i don't think we talked about this i you know i only kind of skimmed what we were going over mm-hmm this solitude is the root of what we now after the fall would probably call loneliness yeah that's a good point yeah solitude is actually a good thing there's a negative quality to it but not in the sense of like lacking or sort of lacking but like it's not this negative thing that should be avoided but it's actually a positive step towards a completion it's oriented yes. towards something. It doesn't have an end in itself. Mm-hmm. But the fall takes solitude and twists it and says, hey, no, you actually are alone. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of where we, we left off. And so now we're going to talk about original unity. And, and, and John Paul II is bringing the body into conversation with all this as well. Like the experience of subjectivity and solitude, all this fun stuff. There's, I mean, there's so much. I've been reading this. I'm like, this is so darn good. This is a lot of fun. So I want to kind of talk about original unity today. What, what is he getting at? Why, why is this important? And he says again, he reemphasizes this idea that this, uh, the solitude is the prerequisite. And he's setting the stage for what we're going to get to in a bit about the law of the gift. But he starts off with this phrase that I found to be a, it is a jam-packed phrase. And I, don't worry, folks, I'll break it down. But it's really awesome. Although in its normal constitution, the human body carries within itself the signs of sex and is by its nature male or female, the fact that man is a body belongs more deeply to the structure of the personal subject than the fact that in his somatic constitution, he is also male or female. That's a, that's a dense phrase, right? Yeah, you lost me a little bit at somatic. Somatic is... A way of talking about bodily, right? So soma mm-hmm. in the Greek means body. There you go. Okay. So, so when you hear somatic, that's what we're talking about. So you hear this in psychology, like somatic manifestations, right? This means bodily manifestations of a psychological disorder or something like that. Okay. So what is he saying here? Because actually he's saying a lot <laughs> in this one sentence. Mm-hmm. The first sentence is he says, yes, the body carries within itself the signs of sex. By sex, he means... Our sexual, gen- our sexual differentiation. Our body carries within itself the sign that we are either male or female. But he says, the, not just the bodily, but even the, the, the sexual difference is rooted in something deeper. Hmm. It's rooted in our personhood, in the personal subject, he says, of which the body is a sign, a sacrament. So he's getting at this idea that sexual difference is not just a bodily thing. Right. It's a personal difference. It's on the level of personhood, of our being. It's something constituted in us, in our whole being, not just body, not just soul, but the whole self. And this is, this is exactly what our current world thinks is untrue that your the sexual differentiation is simply an accident that can and sometimes should be changed Mm -hmm. and what john paul ii is claiming here is like no 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 no. part of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman like that's you that's part of your person yeah so that's a big claim exactly this is he's saying this is and that this is constant this is recognized simply by reading the text of genesis you just have to Give it a read to understand that this is true. Um, and to see that this is like a gift. Like one of the things we're going to, like this is where he gets that later on when he talks about the meaning of, um, uh, it's after original nakedness here, um, the meaning of gift in our nature. Uh, where is it called here? Oh, 
man in the in the dimension of gift. This is what he's setting himself up for. Mm-hmm. That at, at the heart of our humanity, we are made for gift. It's what we call the law of the gift. But that that our nature, our maleness and our femaleness, is actually constituted in our nature, in a creative act by God. Initially, it's constituted in our nature. So it's something received. It's not something we create. Now, something we grow into, appropriate through our own free will, absolutely. But there's another thing he's saying here, too. The body, then, is not just some extension of the self, right? Like, as if my the soul or the person is the real me. Right. He's saying, no, you can't look at the body and the self in, the, in, that, in, that, in that separating way. They're actually together. Right, and this is this is the big thing. He's a lot of what he's writing is against this um, Cartesian dualism, yeah. Where the body is a vehicle, the soul is the real self, and this is something yeah. that's super prevalent in, in thinking in, in most most modern people. Well, this um, is this is root of the transgender movement, right? So uh, I don't know how much we want to get into like because this is the thing as we go through yeah. theology of the body, it brings up a lot of current issues. But maybe yeah. it's more important to kind of get his teaching out there first and then we can mm-hmm. do a more thorough episode mm-hmm. on dealing with these things instead of trying yes. to sneak it in as we go yeah so all right so this is what he's this is all he's saying in that one sentence mm-hmm. it is it is a jam-packed sentence and it's quite beautiful that we are constituted this way this is god's original plan and the other thing he's saying this is i think you know he recognizes as an intellectual that culture changes over centuries and not over minutes Mm-hmm. And that as people appropriate intellectual systems into their life, that's how change happens. Like Hegel, we're seeing the impacts of Kant and Hegel today, three, four hundred years later. It's the same thing. I think we're not going to see the impact of this until we appropriate it and let it seep into the culture of the church more and more. So, anyways, following this, he then talks about um, th- that this um, this la- this uh, solitude in man is something that God wants to bring to completion through the creation of women. And so he talks about the sleep of Adam. I don't want to say too much about this. It's a very, but he actually goes into it a lot. But I think what I want to talk about is, is where he talks about the sleep, he says this, perhaps therefore the analogy of sleep indicates here not so much a passage from consciousness to subconsciousness. That's how we often see sleep, okay? Mm-hmm. But a specific return to non-being, a death, if you will. Mm. Or to the moment before creation in order that the solitary quote-unquote man may be god's creative initiative may by god's creative initiative re-emerge from that moment in his double unity as male and female so adam sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say so it's kind of like by adam going to sleep when he awakes he's kind of a new creation because woman is there as well right and by going into this kind of state of non-being, this is not just a simple going to sleep. This is something deeper. Can you hear the Christological overtones here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're reading John Paul II's Theology of the Body, this is the key. You need to read the cross through mm-hmm. it all. Because for John Paul II, the cross reveals the law of the gift. which reveal- So he's reading this into Genesis. Yeah. Okay. He's reading this into Genesis. Genesis. So Adam, and again, this is kind of constituted in us from our beginning. Adam is gives up, quote unquote, his life. He gives up a part of himself, the rib, mm-hmm. in order that woman might live. Now he goes on from this to talk about how this second eye that comes to being is, he, got, he calls it the dimensions of homogeneity. So that this idea that there is a real... Com- commonality and equality between man and woman in this creation account. Even God saying, or even man, even God saying, I will make a helpmate for him, is showing Adam create is exists for her, but also she she exists for Adam. Right. And it's important, I, this is something I bring up sometimes when I talk about this, is that that Hebrew word for helpmates you know, when we hear helpmate, we think of assistant, but mm-hmm. that's the same word that is used to describe God. God is Israel's helper. 
So mm-hmm. it's not it's not this kind of like modern sense of a woman is is for right. man in a servile sense. No. Right. So it's no. important to keep that in mind. No, exactly. And I think this is the thing. Like one of the things he's trying to get at here is because one of the things he will talk about eventually when he's ta- when he investigates more the qualities of male and female, he will talk that woman is primarily a receptive creature. Yeah, I think it's important to be thinking as we go through this and listen to this, what are the modern perceptions of what it means to be male, what it means to be female? What are our normal cultural understandings? And like, keep that in the back of your mind. So like, what does it mean that man undergoes this death and then gives of himself for the other, for the female, okay? And because this, even though this is before the fall, John Paul II says this is still a part of what it means to be human. So how should a man act toward a woman? You can get hints of that from this story. Exactly. And um, this is something we mentioned before on our Mary podcast, this idea that actually like we're in an overly masculine world where we see receptivity as a sign of weakness. But actually what John Paul II is saying is actually, no, this is integral. If we, first we need to see humanity, not just in isolation of individual beings, but more constituted in its common humanity Mm. in the equality between male and female and that both give something to each other that completes the other and that one without the other is actually incomplete. And so this receptivity is actually not only a gift, but it's integral to the human condition and and that humanity cannot be itself without this. And not only that, then this receptivity, and actually, in a way, we could even say that this receptivity even has a kind of logical priority because it actually shows what humanity ultimately is. Yeah. Even Adam receives his being from God. Right. And this is where when the saints talk about the soul, they, all, they often use the feminine. Exactly. Because we receive everything from God. So in a certain sense, that receptiv- the, yeah, receptivity is kind of primal to what it means to be human because mm-hmm. God gives us the gift and we receive it. So it's mm-hmm. not some like passive sort of thing or an inconsequential thing or a helpless kind of thing so much. It's this part that's really integral to what it means to be human, but it's kind of exemplified in a sense in the mm-hmm. woman. And maybe I'm getting mm-hmm. uh, you know a little bit ahead, but like um, because both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God and you need both to understand what humanity is sometimes one will exemplify a certain aspect of that in a uh, more obvious way than the other, but Mm -hmm. both are still essential to both. Exactly. You can't receive if you don't have someone to give and you can't give if you have no one to receive, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what he's trying to get, that there is a real and definitive equality between man and woman at the moment of their creation. And he's going to get into this, this is the completion of the image of God. So this is where we're so that's what he's talking about unity. Because so before we do that, like just a little little aside, how do you think people see unity today? Like if you're if someone says, what does it mean to be unified? Um, or we we're a united nation, right? We are a united right. front. All these different things. It usually uh, means like uh, sharing the same principles, or more commonly, sh- sharing the same opinions, maybe the same goal that. You know, we have various individual qualities, but we're all going to agree on this one thing. I think that's normally how we kind of understand the kind of unity. Right. Yeah. It, it, there's um. What's the word I'm looking for? It's very monolithic, right? It's very like even like even in this world of like diversity and tolerance, it really is only a certain form of diversity and a certain form of tolerance, right? If anything gets outside like the common orthodoxy. Hmm right then it's not it's actually excluded sure what what john paul ii is signing up setting up here is unity is based first at least in the order of creation unity is ordered and based in a a kind of logical priority in difference you need difference to have unity yes right yes yes yeah you need it you have to have it in order to have unity Right. Okay. So maybe like what you're saying is like a lot of times when we think of unity, we think of a homogeneous, like we're both the same, therefore we're unified. It's the, no, we're different and that makes unity possible. Exactly. Right. So this is what we talked about. Actually, we we talked about this about on the last podcast, right? When this is uh, Gaudium, it's best 23. Father, may they be one as you and I are one. 
John 17. And, and the animate spec says, this opened up vistas that were previously closed to human reason alone. And it kind of explains how this is revealed through the cross. And then it ends with that great and famous phrase that man cannot find himself except through a sincere gift of self. Add it, so then we can take out of this, this idea that unity then is only possible with a gift. And the gift is only possible when there's a difference or a quote unquote gap. Yeah. Or, right, there has to be a, or a, what he calls solitude. Mm. Right? And that this difference is overcome without annihilating it in the gift of self to the other. Am I making sense? I think so. You think so? Okay. Yes. I'm almost done with my scotch, so it's a little harder to tell, but I think okay. I think we're good. I think we can move, okay. we can keep going. So yeah, this is where we're getting. We're getting to the communion of persons now, right? So he says, in this way, the meaning of man's original unity through masculinity and femininity expresses itself as an overcoming of the frontier of solitude, right? So the solitude is the guarantee of the difference, and unity is going to be overcome through this um, expression gonna of overcome. man. Solitude is going to be overcome uh, through this expression of man, masculinity and femininity towards each other. Okay, um, and at the same time, as it's an also solitude is also going to be it's an affirmation for both human beings of everything in solitude that constitutes man. So, in giving yourself, you're also going to receive the other totally, and you're going to be, and it's going to be an affirmation of the other. And you will be affirmed through the other. And this is, and he goes on to say, this is revealed through the body in the gift of self. Oh man, I had a thought. What was it? <laughs> I can oh, see that goodness. your head was back. Yeah, it was. It was. It's something about okay. So uh, unity affirming. Ah, dang it. Um, a lot of times, you know, we we view sexual union, or a lot of times the world views a sexual union as a a taking from the other for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, really, really, anytime there is premarital sex, it is a taking. And this is this is true even within um, committed relationships, even if this couple is engaged and planning on marrying, because there hasn't been a a vow and a complete giving of self. Because mm -hmm. what the body is saying in this union is that I give all of myself to you, but mm -hmm. now without that vow of love, that's not what you're saying. So the body is saying one thing and the the mind the soul, you know is saying another thing. But right. in true union in this complete and utter gift to self, it's not for me primarily. It's really for the other person. And this is maybe getting ahead of myself. When you give completely for the other person, somehow that affirms yourself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But you don't do it for you don't do it yourself. Right. It only discovered when you give yourself away. Right. This is the law of this is the law of the gift. Again, mm -hmm. it's the parable of the seed. Only when you give everything away, do you find mm -hmm. because it's in giving everything away that everything's given back. And we are already here and we're going to get into this in a second. But we're already hearing hints of Trinitarian love mm -hmm. in whose image we are made. Right. So he goes on to say that this, um, in the biblical account, solitude is the way that leads to unity, right? So that difference is the way that leads to unity. Yeah. That we can divine volume Vatican II as a communio personorum or a communion of persons. So original sol in original solitude, man reaches personal consciousness in the process of distinction. At the same time in his, this solitude, he opens himself towards a being akin to himself, a help similar to himself. This opening is no less decisive for a man as a person. In fact, it is perhaps more decisive than the distinction itself. So, in other words, that man is open now. Like, Adam, the, the first man, is open in his being to giving to going into a quote-unquote death to give life to another and now he's facing this person in order to give himself as a gift to them and in so doing find himself through them this okay. is why adam this is why adam says bone of my bone flesh of my flesh it is a song of praise okay so maybe this is this is an imperfect analogy but tell me if it works a yeah. lot of times when we talk about dating and healthy dating that in a certain sense before you can date seriously in a healthy manner you have to have kind of your stuff together in a sense mm -hmm. now in this fallen world nobody's gonna have their stuff completely together 
But to do this in a healthy way, you need to have an awareness of who you are and what you have and what you lack. And that's kind of a reflection of the original solitude. This is what I am. This is what I have. This is what I lack. And once you can contain that, then you are in a place where you can give yourself fully to the other because you can't mm -hmm. give what you don't have, right? right? So by giving to the other completely, that union, in a sense, makes sense of your solitude. So you need your solitude for the union, and all of a sudden the union makes the solitude make exactly. sense. Exactly. He's saying that the union affirms the solitude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he's going to go on to talk about like, yeah, this, this, so really man and woman then are created as an existence for, okay, as an mm -hmm. existence for the other. So again, the Christological overtones are just like starting to, just starting to ooze out now, right? Like, it's just right. like, you can't help but see this. Um, and, and then he goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, was, Go ahead. This is, this is just a, a fun thought, but like you see then how from the very beginning creation like humanity was made for christ yeah so like christ was a part of the plan all along right and it's only after christ <laughs> happens for lack of a better way to say it that all of a sudden all of humanity makes sense which is what john paul II is doing in this writing he's going from christ and reading him into the scriptures where he was all along it's this weird yeah. sort of thing like oh, god's really clever <laughs> no <laughs> yeah god actually has this really beautiful plan um that and the key to that plan to understanding it is the life death and the resurrection of jesus christ and so this is this is me this is my own personal little theory stuff mm -hmm. um but this is why, like, as you hear this from, written by John Paul II, it just, at least it, for me, it justifies this idea that while he doesn't talk about it directly, um, the existence of the serpent of the garden tells me that there's already a kind of fallenness to the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I'm of the opinion, again, personal conjecture, folks, this is not dogma or doctrine or anything. But this is why the fall of the angels brings death into the world. Okay. And so God creates man and woman to redeem the world from the devil. They fail, even though it's constituted in their being to give of themselves for the sake of another. They fail. They become selfish. And so then Christ comes to finish this act definitively. Man cannot do it even on his own. God has to come and do it for us, right? And this, but this is the whole thing. He's, John Paul II is really saying, from the beginning, man is constituted to give of self. Yeah. But this is revealed definitively in Jesus. This is revealed definitively in Jesus, and only through Jesus are we able now to see this there from the beginning. You know why I like this theory? is because it brings so much life to that simple phrase that Christ is the new Adam. Mm -hmm. Like, it brings so much more oomph to that, which yep. is why I kind of like it. It also helps deal with, the f with, we could call it the reasonable theory of evolution. How why so? is there death and destruction? How why is there death and destruction in, in the in creation before if God if God created everything and life is supposed to be part of things, why is there death and destruction in it? So if because when the angels fall, they fall at the moment of creation. Right? So they bring it down with it. Yeah, and so it's, it's yeah, funny because like creation happens. A lot of times we think of creation, we think of yeah. matter and stuff, but creation happens before matter and stuff. It happens well, no, first it, with well, the it's, Well, it's or you and I, I would say first in terms of like a logical priority, right? We can't right. talk like, but it's like God's creative action is of everything that is not of Him, and everything is it, the cosmos includes the angelic realm, right? And so their fall affects us. Uh, but it's been good to hear little affirmations of it over time. It's not perfect, but it's, uh, I like it. Um, so he says this, the account of creation of man in Genesis 1 affirms from the beginning and directly that man was created in the image of God inasmuch as he is male and female. The account in Genesis 2, by contrast, does not speak of the image of God, but reveals in the manner proper to it that the complete and definitive creation of man, subject first to the experience of original solitude, expresses itself in giving life to the communion of persons that man and woman form. In this way, 
the second account agrees with the content of the first account. If vice versa, you want to retrieve also from the account, uh, the first uh, from the second account, the concept of the image of God, we can deduce that man became the image of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons which man and woman form from the very beginning. Um, and so what he's saying here then is though the second account is saying that the completeness of the image of God is not just in the individual human, though we do absolutely contain this, mm-hmm. but it finds its fullest expression in the communion of persons in the total gift of self. And so now just, yes, and now just, and what he's saying is this is because we, if we are creating God's image and likeness, then that means we carry that image and likeness in our humanity as a whole. So he's also trying to emphasize this kind of communal vision of humanity that we're not just atomistic or anything like this right, right. but that we are actually in a real communion as a whole humanity and that this whole humanity reflects the very nature of God itself and so if we want to know who we really are we need to know who God is right this is what he's trying to get at um quickly just quickly to kind of finish off here he talks about uh, flesh from flesh and the um and the unity of becoming one flesh. And so what he's trying to say here is that in this kind of mutuality of persons, there's a new consciousness of the meaning of one's body. He says, this meaning, one can say, consists in reciprocal enrichment. Precise. So the body then is revealing, oh, wait, I complete you and you complete me. And then the other person is saying, I complete you and you complete me. That there's nothing, there is no holding back, right? There is a sense of the only way to be truly myself is to give myself away to you. Mm-hmm. And I know by giving myself away to you, I'm going to receive everything back. There's a, like, there's an, like, if you will, there's an act of revelation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At there, right? There's an act of revelation. And that the body then conveys this revelation. But again, seeing the body then constituted in the person itself so that the person, the body is revealing the person and vice versa. And so it's an act of the whole self. This is something willed. And so this is where it gets done with the unity of becoming one flesh. I'm skipping over some really good stuff here because we get uh, for the sake of time. But um, this idea of becoming one flesh, he said, he quotes the scripture, right, uh, from 224. Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says this phrase tells us that there is a real, full, and conscious willingness in the action. Mm-hmm. It's a, the choice of a gift. There is nothing forced upon it, right? There's nothing constricting about it. That there is a sense of, I give myself totally away. And that this one flesh union is, he says, he says that this, uh, through which they become one flesh, has from the beginning the character of a union that derives from a choice. So while the man, by virtue of generation, belongs by nature to his father and mother, he unites by contrast with his wife, or her, or she with her husband by choice. The text of Genesis 2.24 defines this character of the conjugal bond in reference to the first man and the first woman, but at the same time it does so also in the perspective of man's earthly future as a whole. In his own time, Christ was to appeal to this text as equally relevant in his age, since they are formed in the image of God. Also, inasmuch as they are form, they form an authentic communion of persons. The first man and the first woman must constitute from the beginning and model must constitute the beginning and model of that communion for all men and women, who in any period unite with each other so intimately that they are one flesh. So what he's saying here is that anytime someone is entering into a union, it is a conscious choice of a real gift of self. And that though we are in a fallen world, this text tells us the origin and source of what it means to actually be married and to give ourselves away. And that we have to always look to that to purify us in our sinfulness so that we can grow in this idea of self-gift. You know, I can't help but think about when um, the gay marriage debate was happening years ago before it was mm-hmm. legalized. And so often the phrase would be repeated, the sacredness of marriage, the sacredness of marriage. And mm-hmm. it bothered me because it seemed like everyone who was speaking about that had no way to explain it. And that's why mm-hmm. it, be, it was not a powerful argument. It was just a phrase that sounded good because unless mm-hmm. you have this deep biblical and Christological understanding, then the whole idea of like marriage doesn't seem sacred. It seems more like a contract. 
But like, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the sacredness of marriage, that it's an entering into of the whole person because it's an entering into of the body. So there, there was so much context missing within our culture that there was no way that we were going to win that political fight because we were right. so deprived of everything that John Paul II is teaching here, um, which we can understand through Revelation. So just, it's just, there's so much depth here. And this is why it's mm-hmm. so important to, I'm glad we're doing this again, because it, we really need to speak about this more and let it more and more seep into our cultural understanding because mm-hmm. we simply didn't have the tools to talk about, okay, why is um, calling gay marriage, having this thing, why is this not, why is this not, I mean, to be honest, why does it not work? Um, right. But we can get into more of that later. But it just it's a reflection of like, man, we were so deprived of an understanding that we didn't have the tools to argue against this idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So maybe for the next little bit. So I'm doing this every two weeks. So this is actually kind of perfect because I can I can uh, do this for the podcast, too. So this is great, um, at least until Easter. And then so by then we'll finish chapter one of the words of Christ. Um, that's one of six chapters. And then we can figure out after we're going to go after that. But um, yeah, so maybe next time we'll talk about original nakedness and then we'll start to move into the man in the dimension of the gift because i think this idea of man in the dimension of the gift this is the heart of what's so important about it this is the very foundation of what he's trying to he's trying to say there is a whole different way of being mm-hmm. that we need to kind of start to integrate and so that's really the core so we'll do nakedness and then kind of two more maybe on um the dimension of the gift and try and see if we can get through all this before Easter. Yeah. But yeah. So awesome. That was, it's fun stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And I think like, like I said, like, you know, have these cultural ideas and problems in your head, like in your yeah. head right now, like this is beautiful, but what does celibacy mean? Like keep yeah. thinking about that kind of stuff too. Cause all that stuff is revealed in this. It's all as tied to each other. Mm-hmm. It all yeah. makes sense. Cool. But yeah. Lovely. Awesome. Lovely. Well done. Well done. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, please uh, tell your friends about the podcast and tell your enemies too, because Jesus says you must love your enemies. You can please, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, all those places you find your lovely podcasts that you listen to. But we know you always listen to us first, obviously. Um, but you can leave a review there too; it helps people find it. You can find us on Facebook um, at Clerically Speaking. You can email us at uh, clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Clerical5Pod. You can find me at FR Harrison. You can find me either at my brother's house or my parents' house on my day off. And Don't come to uh, either we... of those places. That was a joke. Yes. Don't show up. Okay, good. <laughs> and we will see you next week. God bless. Peace.